Hey, good friends, today we are in the book of Acts. So go ahead and start turning there, please. Acts chapter 13. You probably are thinking we've heard that before. We've done that now about five weeks. So today our goal is to finish uh, Acts chapter 13. We're excited about that. I may also recommend if you're kind of in the shade right now, it's really nice in the sun. Uh, just as warm sun, you might like it. So anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather. And Lord, as Kyle prayed, we do pray, Lord, for those uh, 40 or 50 women that are away right now and, and ask that you would be ministering to their hearts. Lord, even as we're praying, you would minister to our hearts through your word. Lord, we, uh, we want to come and be exposed. We want to allow your word to search us out. We want you to speak to us. Lord, in those deep places where we tend to not allow anyone to speak into and, and we don't even want to look into sometimes. But we pray that this morning your word would do so and that you'd bless it. Father, we pray for any with us today that don't yet know Christ. Lord, that even through this time of coming into your presence, Lord, that they would come to the place where they cry out to you. And so, Father, bless us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in Acts chapter 13. And I'll remind you that chapter 13 and chapter 14, they're going to chronicle the missionary journey the first one of the Apostle Paul. This one, he set out with Barnabas. He, Barnabas, and Mark, they set out on this particular journey. There's going to be three missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul will go through that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. There's, in a sense, there's four, because on the fourth one, he's taken prisoner to Rome, and he used it as another mission opportunity. But this is the first one. You recall there on the mainland, uh, just north of Israel, they were in that area called Syria Antioch or Syrian Antioch and there the church sent them out. Somebody's got to go and reach these people around the world and they chose Paul and Barnabas. And they left the mainland, they went to that island of Cyprus, they traveled all the way through the island of Cyprus, then they went up to today what we call Asia Minor or Turkey and they began to minister in various places there and they came to the region of Galatia, another little town in that region called Antioch as well. And as was Paul's custom, as was Barnabas's custom, they went into the synagogue and they began the dialogue with the people. You remember the synagogue service, essentially, uh, you had a couple of, you had some prayers, a couple of readings, and then one of the learned individuals that was assembled there would be invited to speak by the synagogue rulers. And Paul and Barnabas, perhaps by their attire, somehow it was known, and they were given the floor. And there, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the scriptures. And so in our time together, the last couple of weeks, we were looking at this sermon. It's the first recorded sermon, actual sermon of the Apostle Paul that we have recorded for us in our Bibles. And we looked at it uh, pretty detailed. I pointed out to you that I think you could break the sermon down into kind of two parts. Part one, Paul recounts the history of God's working amongst the people of Israel. And then part two is he's going to challenge his listeners in front of him how to respond to that. And just before, and that's today what we're going to look at, but just before he gets to that part, he points out the way that people in history have responded to the, God's working. And he points out John the Baptist and his disciples. He presents them as a positive example. And then he points out the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he points them out as a negative example. John the Baptist 
responded properly because as we saw, he readied his heart and he worked to ready the hearts of other people. Prepare ye the way for the kingdom of God is at hand. He readied other people's hearts. Sadly, the religious leaders did not. As we saw, as Paul pointed out, as many of us know from our study of the Gospels, the religious leaders, they hardened their hearts and they refused to believe. They refused to believe even what their own prophets had been telling them. And as Paul made his way through so many of those examples, as many as 12 examples in this sermon, as Paul made his way through those examples, he tells us that they saw that, but they rejected that. And then Paul goes on so beautifully to point out how even in their rejection of the prophets, how they were fulfilling the prophets. And so today we pick up in verse 40. Go ahead and take a look there. And in verse 40, as I pointed out, Paul's going to shift. And I think this is so important whenever we come to the scriptures. But Paul's going to shift from considering how others responded to this message to how the people in front of them should respond to this message. Paul's not going to talk anymore about the religious leaders and how they responded to God faithfully bringing forth the Messiah. But now he's going to basically put it out in front of them. How will you respond to the Messiah. So verse 40, he says this, Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one were to tell it to you. He points it back at them. And the closing words of Paul's sermon to this gathering of uh, people there at that particular synagogue is a warning. Paul closes his message with a warning. You'll see it there, verse 40. He says, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. I think if we respectfully, we would add to this word, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about in your life as well, as it did in the lives of those religious leaders that I've been giving examples of, Paul would say. He previously showed that. That was back in verse 27 how they actually fulfilled the prophets by rejecting the prophets. And now he's issuing a warning to them to be careful lest they too fulfill the prophets by rejecting the prophets. That prophecy that Paul quotes is from Habakkuk chapter 1. I imagine most of us haven't read that lately. But if you have, the women that are going cover to cover probably did about a month ago. But Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5, it says this, Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if it were told to you. Very similar to the way that Paul worded it. He said, look you scoffers and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one were to tell it to you. And so Paul, he's warning his listeners. And the warning is that if they refuse to believe, that they're going to experience the same consequences of the unbelief that the city of Jerusalem received during the time of the prophet Habakkuk, which was 615 BC, which was about 10 years before the first uh, wave of uh, coming in of the Babylonian Empire. The, the people of Jerusalem refused to respond to the prophets for hundreds of years, but particularly in the decades leading up to the Babylonian uh, captivity. 
and they receive the consequences for their rejection of God's invitation. And so Paul's point is this, and it's a good point. It applies to every one of us. If God judged them for rejecting his counsel and turning from their sin, well, then he would also reject those who refuse and reject his offer of forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ. The message of the Apostle Paul, indeed the message of all of Scripture, is this, that sin must be judged if it is not atoned for by the work of Christ. That's the message, that sin must be judged and that Jesus Christ came in as our substitute to take the judgment on himself. But if a person won't receive that gift, well then sin must remains must, that it must be judged. God offers forgiveness of sins. Look at that in verse 38. It's that most glorious evangelical message that we're so confident to share as a body of believers and as individuals. And it says this, let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which they could not be freed by the law of Moses. What a glorious message. God offers forgiveness of sins through his son, Jesus Christ. If, however, a person refuses to, to receive that, well then, as Paul is saying, they remain in their sin. So Paul's exhortation to his listeners is respond appropriately to God's invitation of mercy, to embrace the gift of his son as the only means by which our sins can be forgiven. That's Paul's exhortation to his audience. Now, before I move on, let me just make note of this. What does the gospel message require of its hearers, of its listeners? Well, the scripture is clear. It requires a response. It requires that we actually receive God's gift of salvation. The Bible's clear Jesus died for the whole world, at least in my understanding of it, that Jesus died for the whole world. But I'll say this, the whole world will not be the beneficiary of the death and resurrection of Christ. It is only those who receive his gift and apply it to their lives. It's only those individuals that experience the forgiveness of sins and that being declared righteous that comes as a result of placing our faith in his work. It's only those individuals that benefit from Jesus's death. And with that, that's what Paul closes out his meeting. He closes his meeting. I suspect he then, you know, returned to his seat. Remember, he's not the pastor of this church or the rabbi of this church. He's not running things. He was just there and invited to say a few words, and boy, did he. And so I, I suspect he finished, he went, and he sat down, and I imagine there were some closing procedures, and the synagogue ruler got up and said, wow, we, we heard some things today, didn't we, everybody? Well, let me say a prayer, and he closed out the service. Then look at verse 42, my imagination continuing. Well, I'm not imagining this. This is what it says. But my imagination continues that everybody follow him out of the building. It says this. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And so my imagination is service is over. They get up. They begin to walk out. And a crowd of people begins to follow Paul and Barnabas. 
almost like an elected official at some uh, election event and the whole crowd is walking with them as they're making their way to the bus and they're throwing questions at them and everyone's trying to press in on that individual. That's what I, I'm picturing in this scene as people are trying to get more questions answered from Paul. The, the response of this synagogue, the people that were there at the synagogue, is very positive. Perhaps not by every single person there, but the majority of the people there received it very well. Look at what Luke says in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged them. What a word. Begged them that they might come back the next week and speak again. Answer their questions again. As we see... Paul and Barnabas, as they're walking and the people are following and asking questions, they use this as another opportunity. More people want to know. Not one of these like, no, I'm done. Come back next week and maybe I'll talk again, or I just need to go home and get some rest, or the game is on, so I got to get out of here. None of those stuff. I'll talk with you as long as you want to talk. Walk with me. What's your questions? And they're answering their questions. They're speaking to them about the love of God in Jesus Christ and the free gift of salvation that is found only in him by God's grace. The way Luke words it is this, as they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. And I think that's such an important point for us. As, you know, as I look out and I see many of us here have been believers for a long time. We're familiar with the concept of the grace of God. Some of us here, we're just starting to understand these things. Praise the Lord. But I think it's very important that we all remind ourselves of the importance of continuing in the grace of God. Now, first thing, take notice of this. If they're exhorted to continue in the grace of God, that must mean at least some of them have begun in the grace of God. And so that tells us that at least some of the people here in this congregation have responded positively in their hearts to Paul's message and received the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Now Paul tells that group to continue in God's grace. And continuing in grace is as important as beginning in grace. And that's the point that I'm trying to make here. Because many Christians, we often only think of grace as the starting point of the Christian life. We think of that verse in the book of Ephesians, which says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And many times we think of grace as only the starting point. Grace is what got me saved. The reality is our entire Christian walks are and must continue to be reliant upon the grace of God. God wants each of us to, he wants grace for each of us to remain at the forefront of our thinking, not merely as the starting point, but as the foundation upon which every aspect of our life is built. And so we must never leave grace as the basic principle of our relationship with God and move on to higher things. Rather, as Paul exhorts these believers and as he exhorts you and I, we must continue in grace each and every day. The, the scripture is clear. Whether we're consciously aware of it or not, it is clear that every one of us is desperately dependent upon the grace of God from the day that we begin our walk with him and even before that until we come to the end of our days here on this earth with him. And so here's some things that I've noticed in the scripture that are dependent upon God's grace. 
Number one, James 4, 7, we resist sin because of God's grace in our lives. Again, James tells us that. We grow in sanctification because of God's grace in our lives. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that. We deal appropriately with difficulty and trial because of God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Any ministry gifting or calling that we might have upon our life, the Bible is clear, is the result of God's grace. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 4. Any service that we might do for the Lord is by his grace, 1 Corinthians 15. Any success that we might have in that service for the Lord is by his grace, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And one last example, we walk in humility because of God's grace, James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5. The point that I'm trying to make, and I believe the Bible's exhortation to us is the same as Paul's exhortation to this little church there in Pisidia, Antioch, and that is this, continue in the grace of God. Now maybe you're sitting there and you say, all right, you convinced me, I need to continue in the grace of God. How? How do I do that? What does that look like? And what does that mean? Well, to continue in the grace of God requires prayer and it requires dependence. Continuing in the grace of God requires constant communication with God in every circumstance that we face. It requires little prayers like this as you go about your day. God, I need you for this circumstance that I'm facing. God, a question, God, how should I respond right now? Or how would you have me to respond right now? God, what would you have me to do about this circumstance that I'm facing? Or this one a little harder, God, I don't want to do that. And so give me the courage to do what it is I'm afraid to do. Or, and I think this one a lot of us need to say from time to time, is God, I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. Would you remind me afresh of my dependence upon you? There's a constant retelling to yourself, God, I need you. God, I am dependent on you. That is one of the ways, at least, that we continue in the grace of God. There are many good resources about God's grace, as you are no doubt aware. I'll recommend three to you. Chuck Smith wrote a great book called Why Grace Changes Everything. I think every one of us should read it. Why Grace Changes Everything. Charles Spurgeon, many years earlier, he wrote a little book called All of Grace. I think you, I picked it up, a little story time. I picked that I was in Disney. I don't do rides, I get nauseous. So my kids are doing rides and I'm sitting on the bench waiting. And so I was playing around on my phone because that's what we do as Americans now. We can't just sit silently. And so I'm playing on my phone and I came to the iBooks page. You know that thing? Some of you maybe? Okay, they give you books that you can read on your phone. And this one here was for a dollar, all of grace. And I read that my entire time in Disney. And I'll tell you, I was so blessed. I felt like I found gold because it cost me a dollar to find this incredible book. That's called All of Grace, you should read it. And then I think this other one is excellent. Chief, uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. That's by John Bunyan, the fellow who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Another really, really good one. So they help you, they helped me continue in God's grace as I go about 
my day and as I try and walk with the Lord and not to forget how dependent I am on his grace. Those three resources, I think will be a blessing to you. Now let's continue in Acts, back to verse 44. Luke says this, now the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now remember, Antioch Poseidon was a Gentile city that had a small Jewish population, big enough population that they had a synagogue, but a relatively small Jewish population. So when Luke says that almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, he's referring to the great crowd of Gentiles that came out to hear the word of the Lord. And so God was moving in the hearts of the people of this pagan community, and he was drawing themselves, them to himself through the preaching of his word. And God is moving amongst these pagans. Paul and Barnabas taught the word. People left there and told others what it was that they heard, and the people are now responding. They liked what they heard. They gather. Throughout the week, the word is spreading again, not just through Paul and Barnabas, but through the people that heard the word and the people that came home and were excited about it. And you will not believe the guest speaker that we had today. Oh, really? What did he talk about? Well, let me tell you. And the word continued to go forth and go forth and go forth. And the next day at work, Jim, tell him what that guy said at church yesterday that you were telling me. And the word spread so that when the next Saturday morning came, scores and hundreds of people, the whole town came to hear the word of God taught, hoping that Paul and Barnabas would speak again. Notice this, as it says in verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's what the people came to hear. They came to hear the word of the Lord or the word of God. They didn't gather to see a show. They didn't gather to be entertained. They didn't gather to hear personal story time of Paul or Barnabas. They came to hear the word of God. That's what's transforming them. The word of God. And again, the whole city gathered to hear it. Sadly, though, look at verse 45. There were some that were not so excited that what was going on. You see, that Saturday morning, the building, the synagogue was packed, but it was packed with Gentiles. It was packed with people who many times, many likely were stepping into a synagogue for the first time in their lives. It was packed with a group of people that almost certainly weren't following the unwritten rules of the synagogue. They were violating those unwritten rules. And the synagogue rulers were not too excited about this great influx of Gentiles into their synagogue that Sabbath morning. Not because the group was messy or they were loud or they were acting improperly or, or those kinds of things. Luke tells us, look, look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict Paul and speak out against Paul. The dramatic response of the community causes these leaders of the synagogue to become jealous, to become envious, which is the inevitable response for those that are more concerned about being popular than serving the Lord. These guys become jealous. Somebody else became more popular, and when somebody else was more popular or receiving more accolades, they feel as if support was being taken directly from them. And they saw it as a personal affront to themselves. And so they become jealous, they become angry, they begin to work against it. Now we have seen multiple times in our study of the book of Acts 
that the one thing that has infuriated the Jews more than anything is that God's privileges could be for the uncircumcised Gentiles. The Jews, as we've been looking, were intent on keeping God's privileges to themselves as the chosen one. And now here comes Paul, and he's preaching a message that is not based on works, but of grace. And many were responding. Many Gentiles were responding. And in the mind of some of these religious leaders, or all of them perhaps, something has to be done. Luke tells us what that something was. At the end of verse 45, they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, and they began to revile Paul. Some of your versions say they began to blaspheme Paul. That word there, often we apply it to, to something that is said negatively against God, but it can be applied to humans as well. It means this, it means to speak evil of someone or to rail against someone. And so I picture the interaction that is going on here. The synagogue that Saturday morning, it's filling up with all of these visitors. And you can imagine people seeing one another talking, the buzz that is filling the room that is going on there as people are trying to get their seats, wondering, do you think that guy's gonna talk again? That's the guy over there, yep, that's the guy over there. Can I go over and meet him? And all this activity and stuff that is going on on that particular Saturday morning as people begin to press in on Paul and Barnabas in some back room somewhere, behind some curtain somewhere, are the religious leaders. And they're taking notice of all of this as well. And they're becoming increasingly troubled by all of this. And so they call an emergency huddle of the leaders and they begin to discuss and decide amongst themselves, what should be done? What should we do? We can't let this go on anymore. And the decision is made that one of them will take the floor that day. They're not gonna open it up to Paul this time, but one of them will take the floor that day and he will set things right. He'll argue from the traditions, the Jewish traditions, notice that he's gonna argue from the Jewish tradition, not the word of God, but he's gonna argue from the Jewish traditions how some people are preaching a false message, how some people are endangering themselves of the fires of hell, how some people better be careful if they know what's good for them. Now, maybe my imagination is a little bit off, but something like that went down on that Saturday morning. The Jewish leaders were bothered. And I, I ascertain here three things that they're bothered by. Number one, Paul unequivocally made the case in his sermon. If you weren't with us, go back and read it. But Paul unequivocally made the case that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had rejected Jesus and in doing so were in violation of the scripture. Second, Paul, in his message, he preached a message that justification before God has nothing to do with what a person does or does not do. We call that works, but entirely with what Jesus did at the cross. And for the Jews of that day, that was an abandonment of the law of Moses in their mind, a rejection of the teachings of Moses. But again, as we saw, quite simply, the key thing that bothered the Jews of Antioch the most was the people that were responding, primarily Gentile people that were responding. The thing that bothered them about Paul's message is that Paul did not and Paul would not tell the Gentiles that they first had to become Jews before God would receive them. And to these Jews, that was a betrayal 
of their religious heritage and must be stopped. And so, as it says, they begin to contradict Paul. They begin to rail against Paul, blaspheme Paul. Now, for a few moments, and again, I, I was kind of kidding where they said some people are preaching a message, and Paul knows he's talking about them. From my take on Paul's personality, I suspect for a little while, Paul was kind of sitting there, kind of taking it, mm -hmm, yep, just shaking his head. But then, like Popeye, that was all Paul could stands, and he could stands no more. And so it says in verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas, they spoke out boldly, and they said this, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul probably gave them a little bit of space, gave them some time to say what they wanted to say and do what they wanted to do. But then finally he said, look, we're out of here. And he and Barnabas, they got up and they made their way out. And again, of course, that's not his words. He didn't say, we're out of here. His words are, it was necessary that we came first to you. But now we're going to go to the Gentiles since you consider yourselves unworthy of this particular message. The Jews are, and they were, the chosen people of God. And thus, it was their privilege for the word of God to come to them first. However, since they thrust that aside, and since they rejected that message, Paul says that they would now bring the message to those who would receive the word of God. And as we saw, that was the Gentiles. Paul makes his point by quoting another Old Testament prophecy. He knew his Old Testament. This time, Isaiah chapter 49, he said, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Paul went first to his own, the Jews. But when they made it clear that they were not interested in his message, Paul turned his attention to those that were. This is important, I think. Paul didn't spend all of his time trying to persuade hardened hearts. Rather, he went to those who had open hearts. Now, that's not to say at all that Paul stopped caring for his fellow countrymen. We know that he cared deeply for the Jewish people and hoped that the Jewish people would come to faith. We read that, Romans chapters 9 through 11, saying, I'd be even willing to give myself up that they might believe. And so he didn't stop caring for them. But what Paul would not do is waste his time on those that were unwilling to receive and were even actively working against him. He would pray for those Jews. As he went into every city, he would give them first dibs, so to speak, when he would go into their synagogue if they have one. But he would labor among those who were willing to receive. And that turned out to be the Gentiles, and it was to them that he would continue to teach and continue to preach on these journeys. Verse 48 goes on, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. So remember, Paul said, I came to you Jews. You felt like you were above this message. And so I'm leaving you and I'm going to preach it to the Gentiles. 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So based on, and I think many of us probably know this, 
based on what the Jews of the first century said about God, the average first century Gentile would have probably concluded that God hates Gentiles based on the message that was shared by the average Jewish person. But here's Paul preaching that the Lord loved Gentiles as he loves Jews and how the Lord wanted each one of them to come into a proper relationship with him. And so as angry as that message made the Jewish leaders is how happy that message made these Gentiles. Notice what Luke says there. He says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. They responded with enthusiastic belief. That's an interesting phrase. It says there that they glorified the word. That word glorify, we oftentimes apply that to like God. We glorify God. It, it really just means they lifted it up. They magnified it. They highlighted it. These guys lifted up that idea that comes from the word. They glorified the word of the Lord. If they had their own person, I did a lot of imagining this week. If they had their own personal Bibles, what it means is they went to one another and they held it open and they said, did you read this verse? And they shared that with the other person and the other person, no, no, read it out loud. They glorified it. They lifted it up. They rejoiced. God loves us. He doesn't hate us as we've been told all of these years. Then Luke says this, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, some of you may not be aware, but those are fighting words for some within Christendom. Appointed to eternal life? Does that mean that there are others that are not appointed to eternal life? Well, it, that certainly seems what the plain reading of the text has before us. And so this is the debate between divine election and man's and woman's free will. And so let me weigh in on that. The Bible is pretty clear that God destines certain individuals in his sovereignty to be saved. Now, even in saying that, that is not to say that God destines certain folks to hell. The reality is this. Because of our sin, every one of us is on our way, or has been in our lives, on our way to judgment. But God, remember that phrase from last week? But God, he intervenes. And he predestines some to be saved. And Luke's wording for that is this. He appoints them to eternal life. The sovereignty of God. Now, the sovereignty of God doesn't condemn men that deserve to be saved. It saves men that deserve to be condemned. And so in this, we ask the question, does the sovereignty of God mean then that there will be some that really want to believe but because they weren't appointed to eternal life, they'll not be able to believe. And people wonder that. They ask that question. That's not fair. If God appoints some, what if that poor lady over there, what if she really wants to get saved, but she wasn't appointed? And so does the sovereignty of God mean that there will be some that want to be saved, but they won't be saved because God won't let them? The answer is no. Because the Bible also teaches whosoever will may come and take freely of the water of life without price. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. And so somehow in the mystery of God, predestination or election works hand in hand 
with man's decision to choose to come to God. God predestines who will be saved, and the Bible teaches that a person must choose Christ in order to be saved. And both of those facts are equally true, and both are equally presented in our Bibles. Now, some hear that. And they wrestle with that. They seem like polar opposites. They hear what I just said, and they say, well, I don't understand that. Respectfully, I say this to you as I say it to myself. Of course you don't understand that. And neither do I, because the Bible says this, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. And so divine election and human responsibility, free will, they're both taught in our Bibles. And it's a mistake to emphasize one at the expense of the other. And any conflict that exists between the two, it exists in the human mind, not in the mind of the Lord, because he presents both equally in our scriptures. There's one final point on this. Notice this statement about being, and those that were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice where that statement comes in the context of the passage. It comes right in the middle of this great evangelistic account that we have recorded for us in our Bibles. It comes right in the middle of the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, where he went forth into the world to tell folks that wouldn't have heard this message that they might respond and believe the message. I bring it up because sometimes people respond to the doctrine of election by concluding, well, if God's going to save who he's going to save, then why bother evangelizing anyway? Why bother doing evangelistic trips anyway? If God appointed to him salvation, they're going to get saved somehow. Why do I have to go? What's interesting to note as we study our Bibles, as we study Christian history, is this, that those who have been some of the strongest proponents of divine election, I think the Apostle Paul fits into that, but some of those who have been some of the strongest proponents of divine election are also those who, by the grace of God, have been the most effective deliverers of the gospel to those that do not yet believe. That is, people responding to the message that they're sharing. James Montgomery Boyce, he said this, virtually all the famous missionary pioneers were believers in divine election. The doctrine of election, predestination, it didn't dissuade those pioneers. It didn't dissuade the Apostle Paul from going to the end of the earth. It propelled them to go to the ends of the earth. And an interesting thing occurs. If we believe that God has appointed some for eternal life, and that it is as we testify that God is going to use that testimony to bring those persons to eternal life, the interesting thing that happens in our lives is the burden is taken off of us. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about my ability to convince it's no longer about my ability to manipulate the circumstances to put you in the right place so that you respond to the message. And maybe I can trick you into getting saved. And once you're in, you're in. You can't get out of it and you sign the paper, you know, whatever. It's not about any of that. It's about entrusting myself that God's going to do a work in your life and I just faithfully present that message to you and allow the Lord to work. 
that takes the burden off of us in sharing our faith in, in the sense of not that you don't have to do it, but in the sense of, oh, it's so hard to do it. You can take a deep breath and you can say, God, use me to speak truth in this person's life and then use that truth in their life. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. Paul and Barnabas considered it a joy and a privilege to go out and tell others about God's grace. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Throughout that region. Remember the region was the region of Galatia and it's spreading. It's spreading, however, not just because Paul, Paul and Barnabas are going every possible place they can. It's spreading by the new converts as they begin to tell others what they heard, as they begin to tell others and explain what went on in their particular lives. No doubt, as somebody said, like, well, explain that further. I, I don't know how else to say it. Why don't you come with me the next time they're going to speak? That's how the word of God was spreading to all of these different places. Paul and Barnabas did their part. But the reason why it's going through all of that region is the new converts telling others. Each believer beginning to testify to what they learned and what experience they came to. Each one of them beginning to point others to Christ. That's wonderful. Sadly, look at verse 50. At the same time, there was also strong hostility. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of the district. There was hostility. So the Gentiles were responding, believing. It was spreading like wildfire. But at the same time, there were those that came against them, so much so that it forced them out of the district. I like the way David Guzik said it this way. He said, wherever there is revival of God, the second group to be reviled is of the devil. And there was Jewish opposition to Paul and Barnabas, and it was strong enough that it forced them to leave the area. But what it did not do is erase the work that had been done in that area. Because people had come to, people had come to believe. People had gotten saved in that community. And now those people would continue that work in that region, even as the Apostle Paul and Barnabas moved on to another. And so we read that. Look at verse 51. And so Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do in such a circumstance. Now, I don't think they went to the edge of town and they got some sour puss on their face and they shook off the dust. And I don't think they had an attitude about it. Jesus said this, Luke chapter 10. He says, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, then go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And so what Paul and Barnabas do, what Jesus was suggesting that they do is this, not suggesting, commanding, is that they refuse to allow that city's rejection to stop them from doing what they were being, what they were called to do. They presented God's truth, and when they were rejected, they moved on to another place where they would present God's truth in that place. They faithfully did what God called them to do, and then they left it to their listeners to respond as they were determined to respond. They entrusted them to God 
from there, as the, the passage says, they proceeded to Iconium. Iconium is about 50 miles east, heading toward home again. Paul and Barnabas, they don't give up. They just go on to the next big city. And they leave the results to God. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The disciples were filled with joy. Contrast that with the synagogue rulers. The synagogue rulers were filled with anger and with envy and with jealousy. But these disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Complete opposite emotion of the religious leaders. Paul and Barnabas, they do not allow their circumstances, though they were not perfect, but they do not allow their circumstance to prevent them from having joy in the midst of their difficulties. And perhaps that's one of the main things that we can take away from this study here is this. Your circumstances, mine, may not be perfect. There may be things going on in your personal life, in your family, at your place of work, in our community, our nation, that are troubling to you and bothersome to you. Notice this about the Apostle Paul. They were just run out of town by the religious leaders, the one they desperately wanted to reach. And yet they left with joy. Their circumstances did not have to rob them of their joy, and neither do yours. Amen, everyone? Let's pray. Father, that's important for us uh, to consider and to remind ourselves of daily. Though that life's difficulties and even the great things that are occurring in our lives, we don't need to be swinging from one pendulum to the other. But Lord, we can continue to keep our eyes. We can walk with you. As Paul said earlier, we can continue in the grace of God, dependent upon you in all circumstances. And you bless us with your presence. And in that, the joy of the Lord enters in. Father, we pray that you would use us in the lives of others as we go about our days. Lord, that the word of God, the experience that we've had with you, the work that you're doing within us would be seen. People would take notice of it. And as they do, it would be an opportunity for us to glorify the word of the Lord, to exalt the name of Christ, and we pray that you would use us, that others might come to know Jesus as well. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.